I also think a word I'm going to use a lot when we talk about this is heteronormative, and that's kind of the idea that relationships in the world that we live in are kind of built for a man and a woman. And when you're in a queer couple or a couple that's the same sex, a lot of those heteronormative standards for how the world is going to work around you kind of get mixed up a little bit. Welcome to Breaking Money Silence, a podcast series aimed at helping all of us talk more openly about money. Your host, Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, is a wealth psychology expert who is doing what she does best, speaking about taboo topics. International speaker, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection, Kathleen understands money and our relationship with it. Now, here is Kathleen. I am here today with Rose Fireman. Thank you so much for coming back to the Breaking Money Silence podcast. The last time we spoke, you were talking with me about diversity and inclusion and being a queer woman interested in finance and educating people about differences. So thanks so much for coming back. Yeah, thank you so much for having me again. We had so much fun chatting and I had so many more questions that I thought I would continue to break money silence with you. Yeah, I know. We could use an extra hour on this. So one of the areas of specialty that I have, and I've written a book on this, is talking about couples and money and the dynamics around couples and money and how you can resolve differences, break money, silence, and really plan together. Now, my caveat is that the book in no way does justice at all to the LBGTQ community. And so part of what I really want help with today, and and my listeners are listening in with me, is really to understand a little bit about what what is the same and what is different about being a queer woman in a committed relationship when it comes to financial planning. But before we get there, tell the listeners when you first got interested in finance and economics, because I think that background piece is going to be important. That's a great question. I talked about this a lot the last time we connected because this is definitely my money story is I had a grandfather who was really influential in how I thought about personal finance and and wealth building. He was definitely a long-term thinker and he sort of always stressed to me the importance of um, saving for the future. And that was sort of what sparked um, my interest in personal finance because I saw how, how much more ready you could be for the things that life throws at you if you were smart about saving early and often. And then my interest in economics, the short of the story is basically I grew up in a in a really strange coal mining town and watching the boom and bust cycle of coal in my hometown was really educational in terms of how I thought about the world around me. And I, I sort of got interested in markets and and the larger themes of economics just through growing up in a in a resource rich community. And as we all know, coal is essentially worthless now. So then watching like the whole boom and bust of the life cycle of a resource was really interesting to me. But I've always kind of been interested in the hidden drivers of things. And I think that economics is, in my opinion, sort of the the hidden meaning behind a lot of things shake out and how you experience the world. I think a lot of that is driven by the economy that you live in. So that's sort of where my interest in that came from. And what is interesting to me, Rose, is that you clearly are someone who has educated yourself, uh, continues to educate yourself, has mentors, is mentoring other people. I mean, you're really passionate about the topic of finance. But I'm wondering, is your partner as interested in this topic as you? And if so, what, what is that like to have both of you so excited about finance? 
I love this question because she's not in the room, so I can answer for her, but no, she's not is the answer. She's interested in it because I think she sees for me what an empowering tool it is and how I think a lot about my independence in terms of my ability to take care of myself and us in the future. I think it's something I think about a lot, and I know we've talked about this a lot, is how women get education about financial health and well-being and how a lot of women, I think, are missing that education. And I think that my partner would definitely say that she is someone who kind of did not get that education from her parents, much like me, to be honest. But I think that we both kind of come at it from two different two different perspectives. My partner's perspective is very much like short-term, what do we need? And I'm, I'm still always thinking like 30 years out, which could sometimes be very frustrating if all you want to do is think about like planning a trip in the future. And I'm like, well, what are we going to do about the mortgage? So I'm always bringing it back to something higher level. But I think that that's a really nice mix because I think if we were both really into financial planning and planning for our future, I think it would, it would, we'd probably kind of drown each other out. Whereas we're both thinking about different perspectives. And I think that that's really healthy and helpful for me. It is interesting because when you look at couples in general, we tend to attract somebody when it comes to our money mindset that is complementary or different. And so often, you, if you're open to it, you can learn from your partner areas mm-hmm. or ways of being around money that can be really useful, even though sometimes, and I can speak from my own experience, we're kind of resistant to doing that. And it's only when yeah. couples get together that they're so dramatically different in terms of their mindsets and aren't able to appreciate either each other's perspectives that you get into trouble. For example, when my husband and I met, you know, I am a, a saver. I would never spend money spontaneously, much more on the planner side of life. And he was the live for today, buy everybody drinks every time you go out. And so the good news is over 24 years of marriage and 30 years of being together is I have learned to be more spontaneous and occasionally buy um, things for everybody in the room. And he has learned to think, oh, should we go out to dinner on Thursday? You know, we have a lot in the refrigerator and we went out last week, maybe we shouldn't. So we've certainly over time morphed into something that's a little bit more balanced. And so for you and your partner, do you find that money conversations are challenging or a little bit easier because you have different perspectives? First of all, I love that example of the refrigerator and going out for dinner. I, I relate to you so much and your perspective in terms of your relationship. I think we play similar, similar roles. I think having bringing different perspectives is really important. I, I also think a word I'm going to use a lot when we talk about this is heteronormative, and that's kind of the idea that relationships and the world that we live in are kind of built for a man and a woman. And when you're in a queer couple or a couple that's same sex, a lot of those heteronormative standards for how the world is going to work around you kind of get mixed up a little bit. So for instance, the idea that there's there, both of us didn't get a lot of financial well-being training or understanding from parents directly. We didn't, we didn't gravitate towards partners that got that training. Um, I sought it out on my own. I know my partner's always trying to kind of keep up with whatever crazy idea I have. So she's, she's following along, but um, I think that the way the world is shaped for um, same-sex couples is really different than queer couples. I know we chatted about this before, but when I, when I bought my house, I was at the signing and we were like sitting there waiting and there was the loan officer and my, the realtors were in the room and we we're kind of just like sitting there like 
just like doing nothing for 15 minutes. And I finally asked what the holdup was and the loan officer was like, are we waiting for your husband? And it was this really edifying moment for me of like, oh, the whole world is built for same sex couples, it feels like, and I'm going to have to work really hard if I want to be in a non same sex couple or in a same sex couple inside of this world, because it's not built for me. And I'm going to have to prove myself a lot. And I I think that within our relationship, we work really hard to um, to plan out for the future and think about what we want to do next. But kind of bringing in both those perspectives, I think it's really healthy and helpful. I mean, you talked about how your husband's influenced you and you've influenced him. We definitely do a lot of that, but I definitely learned a lot to like, I think my partner is really focused on giving back to the community and being sure that we donate to things that are important to us, causes that are important to us. And I really like adding that, that aspect to my life. Um, it's not something I thought about before. I didn't, I wasn't really the first person to donate to a local community cause. I usually would volunteer my time before I would volunteer money. That was just sort of, that was just my reflex. And I think donating money is super important. So that's a skill set from her that I've really enjoyed learning more about. Well, and one of the things that I think is interesting, and I don't know if you have some ideas on this, but if, you know, I do a lot of training in the financial services industry. So one of the things that I really talk to people about is how do you meet your client where they're at and let go of the assumptions, or if you have any assumptions at a minimum, at least check them out. Don't just run with them. Mm -hmm. And so if we could wave a magic wand and all of a sudden the world of finance would be more open to queer couples and not be heteronormative. Is that the correct word? Mm -hmm. Heteronormative, yeah. Heteronormative. What would be different? Like, what would we notice? I mean, something that my partner and I think a lot about is like the financial planning it's going to take for us to choose to have children, which I don't think the same sex or straight couples uh, need to think about quite as much. For instance, if we should choose to adopt, it's not a, it's something that you really have to save up for. It's an incredibly expensive and time consuming process. And we need to think and plan a lot for how we want to do that. It's, it's not going to be like, it's not just going to be as simple as trying to get pregnant and then being pregnant and having children. There's going to be like years of planning that are going to go into it. I think that's a critical misunderstanding about the queer community. I also think in general, my age group is, it seems to me trending away from having families as young as my parents did. I think people are waiting till later in life. And I think there's kind of this misunderstanding about when people start families and what makes you feel like you're secure enough to start a family. I, I know that where, I, where I'm at in my life right now, I would never be like, oh, I think I'm ready to have a family. But my, my parents, for example, were younger than me and had already started having kids. And it's just crazy to me that I'm, I'm holding myself to some standard that I don't think generationally exists. But I think there's just different milestones for queer couples than for straight couples sometimes. I think kids are the first example, but for people that are going through gender transitions and need to do gender confirmation surgery, that's an incredibly expensive undertaking. Um, and if you're not lucky enough to have that covered by your employer, have that covered through some other means, that's, that's a really that's going to be a really thoughtful financial exercise to plan out how you can complete something that feels like a part of your identity. Yeah. I actually have a really good friend who's transitioning now. And uh, that's a conversation that I've had with her about the financial piece. And they happen to be in a more fortunate position where they can afford it, but a lot of mm -hmm. people can't, which is unfortunate. Uh, you know, things that I've worked with the industry on, and they're, they're very small, but hopefully there's 
somewhat impactful is just even thinking about the forms that people have to fill out and mm -hmm. the assumption that everybody has kids and the idea that you would ask somebody their pronouns you know just if we could train people just to think more inclusively and i think the little stuff certainly could go a long way so rose in addition to people having forms that are more inclusive asking for people's pronouns uh planning and and not assuming that everybody's going to start a family right away what advice might you have for people in the financial services industry about how to better serve you and your partner or people like you? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I think there's a misunderstanding sometimes in terms of what our, what the values are for queer families and whether or not that aligns perfectly with what people think of as a typical family or not some i i think i think this is more of a generational thing but i don't think people are having kids quite as early and quite as often as they used to and i think shifting the paradigm from how are you going to raise and um, take care of children in the future is sometimes the first i think like saving for college is frequently the first question a financial advisor will ask you um, even if you don't already have kids that just seems a little outdated to me because i don't think that's the way the world is going and I also think shifting mindsets around how we can use investment tools for our advantage. I think a lot of people don't understand that a 401k is set up to benefit you. Things like your HSA, if you have one of those through your employer-sponsored health plan, is huge and really um, beneficial investment tools. And I think learning about those things, the tools that you have at your advantage right now, I think what I'm trying to say is the, what you have, like thinking less on a on a long term basis. I don't think my generation is doing that as much. I think we're we're more short term thinkers, and whether that's for good or for bad, I I think we're kind of living until the next next recession or market downfall. Um, and I think it's it's challenging for people my age to think super long term. I don't I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. I think we should be thinking long term, but I think the financial advisory field really wants to get you to think about dividends and income. And I, I think some of those tools don't really serve people my age super well. What I think you're talking about is certainly the old school traditional way of advising, which unfortunately mm -hmm. is still in the majority. But there has been a push, which is kind of exciting, of younger advisors, uh, not only embracing it, being inclusive, offering uh, services to people of all different colors, races, sexual identities, identities in general, doing a better job with women, but also the idea that you meet your client where they're at. So it isn't, I walk mm -hmm. in as a financial advisor and say, we need to talk about retirement. And you're thinking, I'm not even 30. Why am I going to talk about retirement right now? Now, Rose, because you're a long-term planner, you might go, great, let's talk about retirement. But most um, people who are at that stage of life it's going to be about student loan. It'll be about, you know, how do I, you know, budget. It's going to be about parents getting older. Is there anything that I need to think about with them? You know, and mm -hmm. I always say to the people that I train, you're going to want to let the client lead because that's a great way not to make a mistake is to ask them what's, what are the top two or three things financially that are most important to you? And then kind of taking it from there. And it sounds like, some of those old school concepts, while the concepts themselves are good, they may not be useful or as useful for people who are millennials right now in today's world with everything that's going on and the lack of uncertainty. 
That was a much more concise way to say what I just rambled on about. Just to add to that, my generation is way more attuned to where their money gets spent than I think other generations were. So I think some financial tools that advisors push are funds in things that people, the word divest comes up. So things, um, industries that a really environmentally conscious generation is not super keen to invest their money in, especially because investing is, it's not, it, it feels like a privilege. It's a luxury for a lot of people to be able to invest in the market. And that mindset of being really cautious about where you spend your money. I don't know if financial advisory firms are doing an amazing job at, at telling people that their money is being put in places that align with their values. Showing returns is one thing, but I think I think the the sort of values based generation is is real, and I I think you can you can lose a lot of appeal to people if you're not speaking to this need that I that I I really like about what's going on in the world. This need to um, to really just align with who you want to be and kind of shape the world that you live in in a positive way. There's a lot more emphasis, I feel like now more than ever, to put your money where your mouth is in terms of where you spend your money. Like there's this huge push right now to to spend money at Black-owned businesses. At least I'm seeing that a lot in Denver. There's a fantastic map of Black-owned businesses. So you can decide when you get your haircut or when you um, go to a grocery store or go to the movies that you want to spend money at these businesses. And I think this kind of old school mindset of like, yeah, if I if I spend my money there, I'm empowering the owner of that business. And I, I, I don't see that change happening as much in the financial advisory world. I think we're still selling investment tools that speak to the old guard and we might need to think about that differently. There are definitely funds that are doing that. And there's definitely like there's female focused investment firms. But I think more broadly, I think that industry is missing the opportunity to really speak to a generation's values. Absolutely. And one of the things that's growing is impact investing. But certainly, I think on a individual basis, whether you are an investor or not, to really think about where are you spending your money? Am I supporting, yeah. you know, the black business owner, the woman chef down the street, or somebody who's queer and their business endeavor? It's really just, you know, on that level, thinking, where do I want my money to go? And I know for me, and anybody who listens to this podcast, knows that I live in rural Vermont. And one of the things that I made sure I did when I moved here, and certainly, especially now when a lot of businesses are struggling, is to, to buy things locally. And it's easy mm -hmm. to go to a shop online, and I, you know, I do do that as well, and hit buy, because they've made it so easy, versus walking down the street and buying it from the farmer or buying it from the lady who actually made the product. And so, you know, those are some really concrete things people can do. So before we end, I want to circle a little bit back to breaking money silence with couples. Are there any tips you have based on your experience in your partnership and, and your experience just kind of figuring this out around money? For people who are in relationships that are non-traditional when it comes to engaging in a money conversation or just even, you know, breaking money silence at all. I think there's probably two situations. One is one person is really jazzed on this topic and comes in with a ton of knowledge and is sort of like driving the truck of financial well-being, which is my experience. But I think there's also, uh, especially for queer couples, especially for um, couples that are two women, there's a, there's going to be a misunderstanding or maybe a lack of knowledge on both sides. And I think that that's a really good space to just start learning and finding mentors. When I was coming out of the closet, I know I leaned a lot on mentors and people who were out in my community who I could talk to and ask questions to. And I try and do the same things with personal finance. I remember find, like 
the first queer couples I would ask questions to about money and savings because that was where I felt safe and that was where I wanted my guidance to come from. And I think that finding that mentorship opportunity can be really key. And if you look around and you don't see anybody who you super admire or somebody who you or somebody who you connect with, um, you can find a lot of resources online. But I think just starting the journey of getting educated, you know, if you hear of an investment tool, like you just hear it, you're reading maybe through the details of like something that you're up to or you see a news article, like take the time to Google it and learn about like what are stock options, what is equity, what is like just figure out what those things are and you'll keep building this toolkit of um, words that you understand and concepts that start to connect to each other. I think thinking about long-term planning, for me, it's exciting like to think about like, what do we want to do in 10 years? What do we want to do in five years? And then planning for those goals, that's the exciting part. So I think if you can kind of put the the, the carrot ahead of you and be like, we're going to plan for this amazing trip we want to do in five years. We're going to plan to have kids in, in five years. Like think about that as the goal and then figure out the tools you need to get to that goal. Otherwise, it's just scary. So I think you definitely want to find something like some benefit down the road that you're excited about together. I strongly believe in partnering reward and celebration with talking about money and having conversations with partners. So you hit spot on. I definitely want to second uh, that thought. And also, I just want to put out there for people who are listening in that, you know, the financial advising field, which I don't represent, I consult with, uh, one of the things that there's been a push for, and more so now, is making sure that advisors actually look like the people they're serving. So increasing the number of people of color, which is dismally low right now, people of different uh, sexual uh, identities and gender identities, also dismally low, but there is a push. And so there are good people out there. So if you can find a mentor, if you can find a professional, often these folks are inundated because they are serving such an important role and there's not enough of them. But, you know, one of the things that I have really learned in our conversation today, Rose, is that while there are certain differences in terms of, you know, being in a queer couple, there's also a lot of similarities around money mindsets, personalities, talking about money and who's the planner, who's the spender kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate you breaking money silence with me today. Yeah, if I could add one more thing, because I wanted to touch on this, but I didn't do it naturally. Um, I think that sometimes in same-sex couples, there's sometimes this kind of bias that creeps in that one person is going to, especially in, for two women in a relationship, which is like my experience, so all I can really speak to, there's going to be one of us who's going to like take on the role of thinking about money and the other one's not. I really want to eliminate that completely. I want us both to be super empowered. And I, I hope that the queer space moves away from thinking about same-sex couples that way. I think sometimes that's how we're stereotyped to the world. And I think that can negatively affect how we both think about money and, and financial well-being and planning. So I just think having both people empowered to know as much as they want to know about a topic is really important. So that was, the, that was kind of the last one I wanted to end on. No, that's great. I think that's a great place to end. And so before we let you go, where can people connect with you if they have more questions or interested in your blog? Yeah, um, I'm blogging about real estate and I know you will share the link with people um, as well as you can find me on LinkedIn by my full name. And I'm super open to talking to people, especially queer people about money and financial planning. Um, it's a really important topic and we all need more knowledge on it. Well, I love what you're up to, and I love that you came back to continue talking about money with me. So thanks again, Rose. Yeah, thank you, Kathleen. Thank you for emphasizing queer couples. It's super important. 
Thank you for listening to Breaking Money Silence, hosted by Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, a wealth psychology expert, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave a review. Also, share this episode with your friends and family. It is a great way to get the conversation started. For more money talk tips and information, or to hire Kathleen to speak at your next event, go to www.breakingmoneysilence.com.